Amen. Well, we are here the, the final Sunday of 2012. That's crazy. I don't know how long it takes for you, but it'll take me at least a couple of weeks to start writing 2013 uh, on items right after uh, the new year begins. It's always an adjustment um, when, when we switch in our own calendars and we look back and see how much time flies. Um, and this year, not different than any other year, there was things about it that probably surprised you, that at this time last year, you didn't expect would happen in good ways and in bad ways. Things that you're thankful for, things that you look back and you regret maybe having done or said. In the handout, we actually put uh, just a couple of questions for you to reflect on as this year ends and a new one begins. But in it, I inserted just a little bit of information that for me, I I labeled it as a sort of a sign of our times. That in this year, according to Bing, which is Microsoft's search engine, more people researched information this year about the new iPhone 5 than either the Winter Olympics in London or the U.S. presidential election. Now, Microsoft has no incentive of telling us this because what they're saying is that most people used their platform to research information about one of their competitors. Um, but, so that they only tell it to us because it's actually true. And it is one of the peculiar temptations that we will face Uh, that we faced in 2012, we'll face next year, that most of us will not suffer from a lack of opportunity. The question will be whether or not we take advantage of the opportunities that are before us. There are other people right now who, if they were determined to be able to vote, they can't. They don't live in a place that lets them. There are other people that if they were determined to gather publicly for worship, to proclaim Jesus Christ, as the same yesterday, today, and forever. They can't, apart from persecution. And so our big challenge is not a lack of opportunity, but wasting our opportunities. Not realizing that they're there, that if we want, we can just go to a library this afternoon or tomorrow and pick up a book on almost any subject and learn something new. It's, just, it's available to us at no cost. The opportunity there for you and for me and simply the challenge of whether or not we will take advantage of it, whether we will see what's in front of us and not be distracted by things uh, that are around us and that are trying to get our attention. But many significant things happened this year, but we said last week and as we've been going all through Hebrews, the most significant question we could actually research and consider is the question of who is Jesus? Who is this person that our calendars are marked by, that we are turning into the 2013th year of our Lord. If you pick up contemporary textbooks now, they won't use BC and AD. It'll say BCE before the common era, and now we're in the common era, but I have no idea what happened in the first century that makes this the common era now. Um, It it doesn't make sense, except they're trying to remove the religious uh, reality of, of what we're saying. But We are marking our days by this life. And so that's what we considered last week and all through this series in Hebrews. Who is Jesus? The next question which we come to today is, if what the Bible says about Jesus is true, then how should we respond? What is the appropriate response that we should give if Jesus is who he really said he is? And that's what Hebrews 13 is all about. And so we're going to Hebrews chapter 13, finishing our series And if you haven't been with us 
as we've been considering Hebrews together as a church, don't worry. Uh, as all good endings uh, include a summary of content, Hebrews 13 includes uh, the main summary points that we need. So uh, you'll be just fine, uh, even though you're joining us here at the end, not only of this year, but this specific series. Hebrews 13, you'll find on page 1009, if you're using one of these Bibles provided for you. And we're gonna read the chapter in its entirety. It's 25 verses, Hebrews chapter 13. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. And pray for us for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy, send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. And this will conclude our reading.
the answer of the question, how should we respond, has before it, or in addition to it, the question of responding to what? And for us, what Hebrews has laid out is this magnificent picture of who Jesus is and what he has done. And we get here a summary statements that just kind of bring together everything that this writer has been unpacking for the church in the first century. But what he has to say is that Jesus toward us is continually faithful. That's who Jesus is. And we have to understand both of those elements. That who he is, what he's like, his character, his ability, how he works. He's consistent in it. We, we struggle being consistent at times. We can have good days and bad days, good weeks and bad weeks. But when we find out something about a person, we wonder, is that what they're like over a long period of time? Or were they just nice to me today? And so the writer wants to emphasize the continual nature of who God is, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's what we've entitled the whole series. And we get that specifically now. You see where it comes from in verse eight, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But right before that, if you go to verse five, what he says, in what way is he the same? He says in verse five, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's something that we need to understand that all that we learn about God and who he is, he has promised himself to his people to be there for them, to have a relationship with us. And that promise that he's given is an ongoing promise that he has said that he will be with us and that he will never forsake us. And so then, rhetorically, in quoting another part of scripture, the writer says, so if that's true, if the Lord is my helper, then what do I have to be afraid of? Who shall I fear? If he is my helper, then who do I have to be afraid of? What is it that I have to fear? And so if if it's simply said, the Lord is strong, I will not fear. Well, we might have to. It depends on how he uses his strength. It depends on how he uses his character. But here it says he uses his strength, he uses his character as a helper, as an assistant in compassion and mercy toward you and me. That whatever situation we find ourselves in, he will never forsake us. That he will always be there for us. And so he is continually faithful to you and to me, to the promises that he made today, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And actually what Hebrews has said is that we can take those words, yesterday, today, and forever, and say that Jesus has been faithful yesterday in the act of creating all of us. Because Hebrews 1 said that Jesus is the person by whom the universe was created. And today, in the sense of offering now to all of us in this day, salvation. And forever, the result of that salvation is that he secures for us what Hebrews 13 at the end says, a city that will last forever. So it's not just even thinking of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It is yesterday in terms of the beginning of time. 
today in whatever it is that we're going through, and then not just tomorrow, but forever, however many tomorrows there are, he's going to continue to be faithful to us. And then when we try to put that idea into one word, the best that we can come up with is the word found in verse 20, eternal. In the benediction that the writer is giving, he says, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, the covenant that has no beginning, that continues to apply and will always apply, the eternal covenant. That's what he's offered, an eternal promise, a promise to you and to me that never ends, that we can be sure about because of what Jesus has done for us in being born, in living, in dying, and in living again for us. He is continually faithful. That's who Jesus is. The person, the God who made us, who is continually faithful to us. And so then the writer says, the right response for you and me to the continual faithfulness of God toward us is the continual praise of God. The right response to God's continued faithfulness to us is our continual praise back to him for who he is. We get that when we look at verse 15. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So his continual faithfulness, our continual praise. Now we're gonna get to the end of the PowerPoint quickly, but because we're gonna land mostly on the last point. So don't think we're like done in a minute because we're flying through the beginning part. So if it is that we are to continually praise him, then it must mean that we can praise him in a variety of ways. If we're gonna continually praise God, which continually worship him, then worship has to mean something more and in addition to getting together on a Sunday morning and singing songs. That is a way that we worship him. But that's not the only way we worship him. Because we all have to do other things just to survive, just to live. And we won't survive just singing. So if I have to eat in order to live, there must be some way that actually eating can be an expression of praise and thanksgiving and worship to God. Which also means there's a way to eat that does not worship and honor and glorify God. And if I have to work in order to live and provide for a family, then there must be some way that I can do that and in the doing of that, that is worshipful, that is glorifying God because I can only do it continually if I can do it while I'm doing all the things that are necessary just to live and just to survive. And if you come to chapter 13 of Hebrews without understanding first God's faithfulness and that this is our response to his faithfulness, it's really quick that when you just read through this list of things that we're then encouraged and told to do, to be like, oh, I can't, I have to do all of that for God to be faithful to me? No, 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 he is faithful to you. He's already promised himself to you. This is what we do in response to the fact that he is faithful. None of these things that we're then encouraged to do are how we attract God to us how we earn his favor or earn his grace. We can't earn it. 
And therefore, he had to come and offer it freely to us. But it's how we enjoy the things that he's given us. So many of you have exchanged gifts just in this last week with people. And when you got a gift, you didn't pay anything for it. You didn't do anything to get it. It was received by you. All you did was receive it. Some of you received gift cards to either your favorite place to eat or a favorite place to grab a drink. So you received that. Now, what that gift does is it enables you to go and do something with it, to enjoy it. If you take the card and just say, oh, this is a beautiful card, and I'm just going to put it up on my wall. No, that's not the point of the gift. It is a gift. It's free to you. It didn't cost you anything. But the point of it was to enable you to do something. And by doing it, you're not earning it. You're just, you're enjoying it. And God's grace is like that. We can't do anything to earn his grace. He's given it to us. But if we say we've received it, then we should live in such a way that we do all the things that God's grace enables us to do. Not to earn it, but to enjoy it. To say, you know what? We have been forgiven of all of our sins. We have been treated better than we deserve. We have hope when the world offers us no hope. And because of that, we do live in now what is given for us in just so many amazing ways in this chapter. And so we're just gonna go back then to verse one. So trying to frame this to make sure that as we go through this, nobody is thinking, I have to do these things in order for God to love me. No, he loves you. He'll always love you. But because he loves you, this is how he wants his love now to work its way through you. The first thing he says is let brotherly love continue. Brotherly love has behind it this idea that you're treating other people as brothers and sisters, as family. That you are a part of a community of people that you would refer to as your brothers and sisters in Christ. That you choose to be known and to know other people in an intimate way. And if you just think about it, how many people, uh, how many names do you probably know of people? If you just had to like write a list down. Tell me how many names you know. And then take that very same list and tell me of all of those people, how many of them do you know their middle name? Be a lot shorter, right? There are certain things that we can only know about people that over, over a specific period of time. How many people know what your favorite cookie is? And that if they want to express their love to you by making for you what is your favorite dessert, they can make it for you. It's not a very large group of people that could be able to do that. How many people remember the anniversary of the death of someone that you love? And that in the busyness of a calendar and a schedule that's going on, they think about it and they say, you know what? This time last year, this person lost someone significant to them. I bet this day is going to be horrible. I'm going to give them a call. And say, I'm thinking about you. And I remember so-and-so. And what they meant to you. The, the ability for us to do that with one another is, requires a commitment to one another. That I'm going to know you, you're going to know me, and you ask me questions, I'll share honestly about it, and I ask you, you share honestly. But those kinds of things can only happen when we commit to knowing a smaller group of people deeper over a longer period of time. 
And that we could say to people, I know I do look at you and I consider you like a brother or a sister. You're, you're a part of the family that God has. And he says, in that, let that kind of brotherly love, that family love continue. Keep that going. In chapter 10, he said, don't stop, don't neglect getting together. Don't stop meeting with each other because you lose track of these things. When you don't see people, when you can't interact with them, you, you do forget, you do lose sight of certain realities. And so if you, let this love continue. Don't stop serving one another and loving each other. But that's not the only thing we're supposed to do. We're supposed to love each other in the unique ways that only we can love each other. But then he says, now, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Don't assume that you're only supposed to love the people that you know and the anniversaries that you remember, and the middle names that you know, and the cookies that you like to eat. Realize that when you're just out and about on any given day, and someone is a stranger to you, you don't know where they're at, you don't know if they're struggling with something at the moment, and you don't know if you could be a person that is God's vessel to bless them, to encourage them, to impact them. You don't even know if they're really a person. So it says, it could be an angel that you're interacting with. You don't know that because you know nothing about them. So hospitality towards them, just courtesy to people that you don't know, that you've never met before, but you can say they probably have a middle name or they have a background story. They have something that they love. They have something that they've lost. And I don't need to know that specifically to know they're probably just like me. And they didn't wake up today thinking, I hope somebody's really rude to me. I hope somebody uh, is really impatient with me. That's my goal. No. And so not only are we to have this love internally with people that we choose to know well and to be known well by, but we're also supposed to show hospitality to those who are strangers. We're supposed to be intentional and to remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them in verse 3. There are people who right now want to be here and can't be. Either due to old age or physical illness or disease, they desire to be a part of the community, they desire to be active, but they can't be. And so unless the community takes the priority of going to them, they're not going to be able to make it to us. Whether it's because they're imprisoned unjustly or they're bound just physically in a way that limits them. And he's saying, look, I came to you. You were in prison. You couldn't get yourself out of your situation. And so I sent my son for you. So now, what's the right way to respond to that? Be people that take the initiative and go out to those who wish they could be or who wish they could be out of prison. And, and you can take community to them. You can take blessing to them and joy. You can pass that on. And again, all you have to do is just ask yourself, what do I wish people would do to me if I was in prison? If I was bound at home, unable to leave it, would I wish that somebody would call me or that somebody would visit me occasionally? Oh, I do. Well, then it's not hard to imagine that somebody else who's in that situation would desire the very same thing. To be remembered, to be noticed, even when they can't be present. Then verse four, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Now, this isn't the verse that if you're not married, you just get to skip over and say, oh, that one doesn't apply to me. 
No, it does. We together just honoring relationships that do exist. Encouraging other people in their marriages. And whether we're married or we're single, saying, what is it that is in our culture and in our society that tempts us to dishonor marriage, that tempts us to look for some better ideal? And whether that's in the form of media or whatever it is, I even want to fight against those things. I want to hold it in honor. I want to value it, whether I specifically am a part of it or not, but I can give honor to it by not honoring all that denies it, disrespects it. And so you can hold marriage in honor by not laughing at the crude jokes that people around you want to tell. And so, you know, that's not funny. I don't think it's funny to joke about them possibly getting a divorce. I don't think it's funny to joke about adultery. I don't think it's just a game to play with pornography. That's not holding marriage in honor. And when you look at the billions of dollars that are spent every single year in the United States on things that dishonor marriage, you just imagine, what if we just took those very same resources and could apply that to people's medical care that genuinely need it? that could apply that to couples to get counseling when they're going through hard times. I mean, it's clearly expendable income because nobody's benefiting from the money that's being spent on it. Oh my goodness, imagine if the $7 billion spent in 2013 on that garbage in 2013 could be spent on something meaningful and productive and helpful. That's what it means that all of us together honor marriage. And we honor the marriage bed and desire to keep it pure and undefiled. Then in verse 5, that we are to keep our lives from the love of money, that we could be content with what we have. Almost all of us, depending on how things go continually in our society, are even not by choice having to say, can we do more with less? Can, Can we get by when others are either trying to take more or we have a little bit less? Can we be content with that? But would that ever be a goal of ours if nobody else was actually imposing it upon us? That we would say, out of an overflow and a joy to say, I just want to see if I can live on less. Because if I can, I can give more. And I'd love to be able to give more. I'd love to be able to help other people more. Not as a, as a burden, but actually as a joy, it would become one of the most selfish things you could do because you would get so much fun out of it. Some of you have shared with me, it's been so exciting and you can't share it without sharing your joy as you get together as a family and at the end of the year, you think of specific things that you could give to and you include your children in on those decisions and just the fun they have to say, yeah, who are we gonna give this to? Who are we gonna help? Who are we gonna bless and encourage? That family that's sitting together doing that is not in any way missing out on anything. They are having a great time, totally content with what they have and excited to come alongside other people. And here the writer is saying to all of the, we all should be able to do this. Uh, if, if we really believe that none of us have a lasting city here and we're all looking for a city to come, then we can have things here and enjoy them, but we ought to be content with what we have and excited about what's to come. 
We can be content with what we have here and now. It doesn't say to be free from money. All of us need money to live. But to be free from the love of it, to be free from being controlled by it. And so instead of money being our master, we allow it to be our servant to do the things that we determine that it should do instead of being bound and consumed by it. And then it's right after that that he says in in verse five, in case we've lost track of why all of these things are are, are relevant for us, he says, look, because I'm never gonna leave you and I'm never gonna forsake you. You don't have to try to build your life in such a way that you no longer need me. (laughs) One, you can't do that. And two, I'm never gonna leave you. But many of us are insecure because we are used to people leaving us. We are used to people letting us down. Every person we've ever interacted with has made a promise to us that they have broken. Just by the nature of them being human, they have made a promise they haven't kept. And we can translate into our relationship with God and say, I'm not sure that you're always going to be there for me. I'm not sure that you're always going to provide. And it's until we believe that he will never leave us and never forsake us that we will do the things that he is asking us to do because they involve risk. They challenge us in our priorities. And if we don't feel like on this end we have the surety of his provision and his faithfulness to us, his being there for us, we'll have a hard time letting go on the other side of the things that do give us a little bit of security a sense of safety, and that we'll have something for tomorrow. And so he reiterates it again by saying, the Lord is my helper. He is our helper. We don't have to fear. And then he goes on to say, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, but the the way that we can do that best, in verse nine he says, is to avoid just being so consumed and distracted by diverse and strange teachings that we have this way of even sometimes in our commitment to spiritual things or religious things to just being totally focused on the minor things instead of the main things. And some of us did that. We spent so much time in Bible study trying to figure out something that is so complex that we missed the basics of Jesus saying, listen, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father. Like That's just basic. There's not a whole lot of word study that you have to do to figure that out. And don't spend three months doing a word study on something while you're neglecting obeying what is clear and plain and what is the main thing that God has given for us to do. I mean, absolutely, study your Bible and go deeper, but don't let your study habits get ahead of your obedience and your practice of it. Because there's nothing like practicing it that'll make you want to study it more. I'm like, oh, somebody asked me a question. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know the answer to that. Okay, so now I've got, I, I do want to study that more. But that those two things go together. Your knowledge of God and also our obedience of him. And here there's a bunch of people in the church that are getting distracted by things that are secondary and lesser important. And he says, don't get distracted by that. And then he actually, he ends the book and the chapter doing the very thing he's, it, that he started telling us to do, to let brotherly love continue. And he does that by identifying to his audience at that time his own greeting, 
that he views them as brothers and sisters, that Timothy's about to come, this person that they know, that he's hoping to get together with them. And there's a sense that as the letter ends, the life of faith continues. That they're gonna go on and there's more here for them to apply and for them to do than they're ever gonna be able to have all of the time to do. But that as this comes to close, there's a hope in its ending. That there, do you see it? It, This isn't an exhaustive list. Don't take this as the, well, these are all the things I gotta do. No, this is the way we have to think. And we might come up with all different kinds of applications of how we praise God in the way that we work, in the way that we parent, in the way that we relate to one another, in the way that we are informed citizens instead of just numb and distracted citizens of our communities. But this is, this is what he is worthy of. Our continual praise. The praising of him in how we do whatever it is that we need to do in order to live community, hospitality, marriage, and money, and on and on. That is the right way for us to respond to his faithfulness. David actually said it long ago, and it's the quote in the end of your handout. David said this in the Psalms, every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. We respond to his greatness by praising him, in a great way. In great there with, with all of us, with, with all of our lives, all of our personality, all of the diversity that we experience in any given week, that we look at everything that's before us as an opportunity to give him praise. So I encourage you to take some time, look at specifically uh, those reflection questions as you look back on this year, but then shape those questions as open-ended opportunities as you look into a year to come. How is it that you are willing to let God work through you? What is it that you're hoping for and longing for and asking God to work for you and on your behalf as you go out into this day? But he has given us his all. And we're reminded that again at the end of the chapter where he says that it's by his blood, by the blood of the eternal covenant, he offered everything that he could offer, his life offered for us. And the right response of that is our life offered back to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we do thank you for your faithfulness in another year. That we are here, that we are able to open a, a Bible, that we're able to see brothers and sisters in Christ, to be encouraged by them, to be challenged by them, to find out their own struggles and situations. And Father, as we look backwards and we look forward, we we pray that you would keep our eyes on you, that you are the same yesterday, that you are the same now, today, and that you will be forever. Father, we thank you for giving us your all, for offering your life upon a cross, for paying the price of all of our sin. And now we ask that through your spirit you would help us in all of our freedom, in all of our grace that you have given, that you would help us to live obedient lives to you, serving and honor you, because you are worthy. You alone are worthy. And it's in your name we pray.
Amen.